From our soundstage and auditory office to your hearts and ears across the globe, the following has been crafted with care for your listening ears. When I think of this show, I think of Pan-Africanism, of diaspora and of global citizenry. I think about diving headfirst into the individuality of folks, so you, uh, so we rather, can better understand the collective soul of all humans. I think really of embracing the world with all its nuances and complexities. And I can think of no better symbol of that energy than the consummate diplomat that is my next guest. Ray Frankhauser, a native to Montreal but a son of the world, has spent decades in service of Canada. Over 21 years to be exact. His influence has been felt globally, from jaunts in Asia, in the Middle East, and in South America, just to name a few. His passport is laden with stamps. As a global strategist and a connector of countries and their people, he's versed in seven different languages. And as you'll soon hear, his dedication to learning and serving borders on the absurd, but only because it is grounded in an intellectual lens, one that is accessible to all, and one that is grounded in something that is profoundly humane. Good morning, good day, or good evening, and welcome to 54 Lights. My name is Kandwani Mwase, Ethiopian-born, Canadian-raised, and proudly Malawi. For those just joining, or those joining as a matter of habit, remember that this season we're diving headfirst in the deep end, dedicating each and every episode to seeing one corner of the African continent. We're going to march the African map, if you will, and all 54 countries in it, one story at a time. But before we take off our preseason, prolonged and powerful, you're in for a treat. Well, thank you for coming on 54 Lights, man. I am looking so forward to this conversation and to continue to be talking to you outside of this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a fantastic forum. I've been listening to some of your podcasts. I like the subject matter that you have been getting into. I like the openness that uh, you've been able to encourage from from your guests. So I'm really glad to be on. I appreciate that, man. And I hope that um, I hope that we can continue that that openness. And um, I, I say that knowing that you come to this show after after 21 years of service in the in the diplomatic corps. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Look, I yeah, I was in my twenty third year, I guess, when I hung up the skates. So yeah. <laughs> now, listen for for those who are only going to listen to this on the on my traditional auditory format, we are not talking to a man in his uh, his sixties or seventies, even in even in his fifties. I I won't I won't betray your age because we're boys. So I'll just say you are quite young. And to have 21 years of service, A, is remarkable, but from what I understand, like, tell us, tell us your journey, man. You came out of uh, CJEP and you were pretty much right there. Yeah, that, that, that is very interesting. So I guess my, my life is one of a lot of pivots, right? Um, 
you know, even during the time that I was uh, studying with you in, in high school, um, you know, shout out to Lower Canada College LCC for anyone who's familiar with it. Um, I actually left LCC for for a short while because I had enrolled in a music school. So um, when I made a decision to really stay on more of an academic track and not have the, the music element quite as prominent, I returned to LCC and graduated from high school at LCC. So we graduated in the, in the same year. And uh, after that, I, I did go to, to Marianopolis for your classic health science uh, <laughs> program that everybody wants to do. Um, so I did do that. But the interesting thing about it is I left uh, Quebec. This was right after the referendum around 95, if I'm not mistaken. 95. So around 95, 96. So I left uh, Quebec at that time and actually did my undergraduate in, in Alberta. Now, you've served in, from what I understand, Germany, Ecuador, Pakistan, Guyana, and China. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so um, I, I'm, I'm, I just want to make that sink in for our, our listeners. Like that's, again, that's five different countries in very dis disparate parts of the world. I mean, albeit Ecuador and Guyana. Uh, and that's only some of them. Uh, well, I was just about to ask, like that's a, <laughs> that could be too short a list. So- We'll get to expanding the list, but but to go sure. back on your trajectory for a second. Yeah. China was your first posting, isn't it? Yes, that's right. As a 21-year-old. How did so how does that happen, right? Like you're sitting there and and in the letter they say you've got to be ready to relocate. And instead of you relocating to I mean China? Like that's yeah. just far. At 21. Yeah. So, you know, I think I've got to give credit to to how things were in the past, because obviously things become so much more systematic, you know, as we go along now, you know, everything is heavily documented and I don't have anything against paper trails per se. But when it comes to managing a career, sometimes there's nothing better than just having a conversation with the people who are making the decisions, you know, <laughs> and and in this case, you know, my first sort of short stage was was in Germany. So I spent a couple of months in, in Germany just seeing how things are out there. You know, no pressure. They just want you to see how people do their job. And I guess because I, I did particularly well at that, they decided that the next thing that they should do is basically send me out on my own to run an office. So that's that's how this conversation happened about China. They basically said, look, we have a person who's who's pulled out from there early and, you know, we need you to go there ASAP and, and take up the reins. <laughs> and so they said, you know, uh, how quickly can you get on the plane? Um, and, and that's how China happened. Right. So, you know, you get on a plane, Singapore Airlines, all of that. And you take your little self and you land in Hong Kong and, and then they take you over to China and they say, well, here's your office and, you know, good luck. That's, that's pretty much how that happened. While you do speak multiple languages, is, is Mandarin or Cantonese, are they, are they one of them? Uh, well, at that time, I didn't possess any. I did uh, gain some over the period of time that I was there. Um, 
just because that's the nature of being in, in an environment, at least that's the way I view environments is it's a way for me to, to take something, right? Learning is something that you can take uh, from a place, right? And the best thing about learning is when you do that taking, you're not necessarily doing it at the expense of anyone. It turns out in most cases that when you learn from someone, they actually benefit from that exchange as well. So, so that's my attitude toward, toward learning in, in these intercultural scenarios. So yes, at the time I had gained a reasonable uh, level of functionality. Obviously that dies off quite quickly when you're not in the environment. Um, and then the interesting thing about China is if you want to talk about intersectionality, I guess I must have been like a, a walking advertisement for intersectionality because f first of all, uh, the person who's chairing a meeting is never 21 years old. Uh, second of all, uh, they weren't expecting a, uh, a melanated individual to be running the show. Um, so, so you can just imagine all of the different layers that were going on, right? And of course, you're supervising people who are, who are twice your age. So, so there, there are all sorts of dynamics there that you, that you have to manage in terms of establishing credibility, um, not necessarily using your authority as a weapon. Right. Because that can only take you so far. But there are situations where you have to be quite firm with respect to what it is that you are there to do and what it is that you are empowered to do. So so it was a baptism by fire, obviously. Uh, I think that that's what I find really fascinating um, is that through through at such a young age, you're talking about baptism by fire and like like sort of ignore the like the literal uh, kilometer distance between China and Montreal, China and Alberta. Um, like the, there's, it, it, it does feel like you've got, as you say, you've got age, you've got the melanin in your skin, you've got all of these dynamics. And, and at the time, you've got a linguistic barrier as well. So from, yeah. from a familiarity, like you may have gained it over time, but you didn't have that as well. Yeah. So yeah. You know, I guess I guess my one of my follow up questions, and I'm sort of off script here, but I, this is how it typically goes, um, is throughout your um, your your years of service, um, you've been to very like very distinctly different cultures. Yes. Um, I think that they they have uh, again from the ones that I know of, and I'd ask you, I'll ask you to rattle them off afterwards. But from the ones I know of, they have this distinct personality. They have a distinct ethos. They have a distinct energy that you can. Uh, I love that you can learn from, and then uh, the, and and rather than take away. But mm -hmm. um, but how was that adjustment period? Like, how are you able to adapt and move and and sort of like ground yourself in different cultures? uh seemingly unscathed yeah so see for me those challenges are actually what i thrive on so i think that's that's exactly what we're talking about in terms of aligning with interests or skills or values when there when you don't have that level of friction in terms of your interests and your values you don't get that level of wear and tear on yourself and it's an important lesson for most people with respect to any type of career choice, because for most people, a career choice may not be geographical in nature, 
right? You know, it's not necessarily a question of, am I going to be in China or am I going to be in London or, you know, most people are not necessarily looking at their career in that way. But even when you look at the line of work that you're doing, right? People are too stuck on, I'm going to do this particular job because people say it pays well, or I'm going to be in a particular industry because there are lots of opportunities. I read an article and said, you know, this is a particular area that has a, a great future. All of that is nice in terms of framing your choices, but you know what? If you're not feeling it, don't go in that area because you're going to age, you're going to age so quickly just because every day is going to be a drag. Every day is going to be something you need to force yourself to, to face. And that's not the way that you want to go about a, a career. And for me, maybe that's why I've been open to the shifts, because I feel that those are the things that challenge me, whether it is intellectually, emotionally. I'm a person who likes that and I'm a person who needs that. So I had to be in a situation that catered to that. Whereas there are other people who would say, oh, yeah, you know, I'd rather just be in an office and I'd rather just have my space and I'd rather just own my position. There are people like that and I have no disrespect for that. But you need to make sure that if you're in that particular lane, that is the lane you want to be in. Yeah, it's something that's chosen. And I love the way you say that, actually. So I was going to ask you about um, consulting, but you like that sounds to me like you should be a career consultant because it's it's interesting. A lot of people that I interview on this show end up being artists and it becomes like this really tough conversation with some of them is to say, when did you realize that you had to chase your dream? Right. Mm -hmm. And for them, they've answered in such a, a beautiful and nuanced way but i love your answer as well um because a because it's quite different from the ones i've heard before but mm -hmm. it is about choosing you know choosing a space that you can thrive in from a consulting perspective and i don't want to necessarily turn the page on the diplomatic core sure. work uh just yet but i think it's more about the mindset that i want to know about rather than the diplomatic core that you the service that you did how would you coin your your uh, your practice or your emerging practice, if you will? For me, obviously, global strategy consulting has to do with having an appropriate level of global awareness, which isn't necessarily built into most corporate strategies or structures. So sometimes the gap is in the strategy where companies are completely blindsided by areas that they should be involved in or investing in. And in other cases, they may have a strategy, but they don't have a structure to deliver on that strategy. So where I come in is to identify or validate issues with strategy on a global, on a global scale. Or to say, if you're looking to operationalize this, you're going to need a different focus. You're going to need a different resource level. You're going to need a different team set up. You're going to need a different approach in terms of how you assess your performance. Those are all things that come into the global strategy space. And so where I find myself typically is 
dealing with senior executives who are basically saddled with these duties. And I say saddled because in a lot of cases, they don't take to it naturally. You know, they're given a certain resource base or they're told that they're supposed to conquer a particular market position, but they're, they're, they haven't really taken it on. It's almost like they're doing it in spite of themselves. So I tend to be in that senior executive type space, but I also tend to deal with a lot of people in uh, on boards where boards are looking for strategy, but they're also looking for governance. And obviously in the current environment where everybody's talking about ESG, I think the, the fact that everybody's talking about ESG doesn't mean that everybody properly understands ESG. It just means that they're talking about uh, and, and so in those cases, it's the question of, do you graft on, it, it's like putting a bumper sticker on your car, right? The fact that you put an ESG bumper sticker on your car doesn't make you an ESG person, so to speak. Right. So, so the idea there is to try and suss out, and, and, and I'm not questioning people's intentions, at least not initially, it's to suss out the extent to which what they're doing is performative to suss out the extent to which they're actually engaging or committing to that, the extent to which some of these values are actually integrated into the strategy. Because remember, if you have a value statement that says ABC about your company or even a mission statement, and I look at your strategy or I look at your the minutes of your board and I don't see anything that integrates or includes those elements, then you are 100% performative. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a misalignment there, but to your point, it's performative at the end of the day. Listen, you, you touched on a, a bunch of stuff, which I really find really interesting because some of the conversations that I'm having in my quote unquote nine to five, but I don't necessarily consider that because we don't work nine to five, is mm -hmm. this idea of... Um, strategy having to meet structure, which I think is, is kind of what that, that intersection has to be real uh, for, for success really to emerge. But the other one that I, like I'm toying with is staffing, looking at resourcing and seeing if you are resource ready to meet those things. When I hear what you're saying, uh, I'm interpreting that you put uh, you would put maybe resourcing and staffing within structure. Like that's 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 part of how your your outward your outlook is that is that fair to say? Absolutely, because remember, not every organization has you know an infinite level of flexibility. Remember, I come from my diplomatic background is I've taken over teams in different countries where I may not necessarily have the flexibility to decide from A to Z who's going to be on my team. Okay. Remember, this is the public service. Yep. If you don't like someone or you think they're dead weight, it's probably going to take you 20 years to get rid of them. And you may even ask yourself if it's worth it to go that way when you could actually find a better way to make them more productive. Okay, so there are some hard decisions that you need to make with respect to that, particularly because you don't spend more than three or four years at a particular location. And if you subtract the amount of time it takes for you to gain your your feet and then to draw down, you don't have a lot of time, a lot of operational time 
on the ground. So you need to quickly establish relationships to the extent that you can leverage the resources you have, the human resources you have, because you generally don't have time to reinvent your entire team. Recruitment processes take very long. If you think they take long in the private sector, you should see how they how long they take in the public sector. So so if you're going to go that that particular route, you need to understand that there're going to be some significant limitations. So where can you gain is if you have a strategy that actually takes into account the human resources you have at your disposal instead of having some idealistic strategy where you say oh i need to build a team to suit that strategy in most scenarios it's not feasible it's not feasible and that idealism is actually what trips a lot of us up because we say oh you know i had this great strategy yeah 10 on 10 for your strategy but I had so many roadblocks in terms of how to put that up because there are certain people who are resisting it or I wasn't able to get rid of a certain person. If that's where you're stuck, then you might need to make some adjustments to your strategy. Uh, that's that's some f- fantastic counsel. Um, I, w- what I'm inferring from what you're saying, um, aside from the, 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 the gems in there about how to I don't want to say operationalize, but how to make it real, right? Like how to make your strategies real. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm extrapolating some of the, the things that you're saying and, and applying them to a, a much uh, more, uh, a smaller universe, right? Like you, because I think it's transferable to a sense. But so your 21 years in the in the diplomatic corps, do you think that they have um, helped? Uh, prepare you for this type of work? Because I, and the reason I ask you that is because if you are having, or sorry, not if, when you are having these types of conversations with C-suite and board members, right? That doesn't sound like it's all going to be roses and, you know, a glass of wine to be like smiles. Like it sounds like in in some cases, as you say, you're dealing with people who are either saddled with a, with a mandate in over their head, like you've got to have some tough conversations here. And so did the diplomatic court prepare you for that? Did, I mean, you know, I'm thinking about you as a 21 year old running the show in, 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 uh, in Hong Kong or, or, or Beijing, you know, kind of like that probably served you well in terms of like this boardroom. hundred percent. Look, um, when you're having those conversations, Speaking truth to power is not something that comes naturally to most people. And even to me, it didn't come naturally. It was as you gain experience and as you're able to draw on that wealth of experience, you establish credibility in circles where people would normally be very resistant to what you have to say. So when you walk into a C-suite scenario and you can actually draw a specific example of, of how and when you dealt with a crisis or how and when you negotiated something really challenging or how and when you executed on, on a particular overarching strategy, that's when you have their ear. Because now the conversation is we're talking to a guy who's done something like this. We're talking to a guy who can draw on something concrete, and we're talking to someone who's willing to translate that into something that we can use as a client. So for me, the experience is 
absolutely invaluable because as you said, when you look the way you do, and when I say look the way you do, whether it has to do with age, whether it has to do with color, or even in terms of how you sound, people have a lot of preconceived notions about the value of your presence, not even the value of your product, the value of your presence. And so I've learned how to understand those preconceived notions and play with them or even play against them as required. How do you balance? How do you find balance in your life? Almost everything I do, no matter how serious it is, involves an element of play. That is the nature of, of the way I operate. So we can be in situations that even involve life and death. You need to understand that Stepping back and developing a strategy and having a playbook is something that you need to be able to do no matter the circumstances. And I think sometimes what happens is we kind of park, we say, oh, I'm in play mode or I'm in work mode. The fact is, if you can unify those, like if if you look at a meeting that I'm chairing, yeah, I'm going to have an agenda and yes, I'm going to have deliverables and I'm going to, you know, we're going to spout all of that stuff. But there's always going to be an element of play, even in that, because people need to be able to access that part of their brain. It feeds their productivity. And I think we're only realizing that now that, you know, we don't always have to just say, oh, you know, it's the big, bad competitor or whatever. We can actually have a lighter approach to things and still deliver the same level of performance, if not better. So if you ask anyone I've worked with, that's probably what they would tell you. They'd say, yeah, he's a serious guy. But at the end of the day, we can still laugh about what we're doing. We can laugh about the mistakes that we make. We can laugh about the moves that we need to to make to get this done because we're performing at that level and we're continually improving because we support each other in that in all of your travels, tell us about an adventure that you're allowed to and you're permitted to that has um, that has stayed with you, let's say that. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, music is is obviously not something you're, you're getting paid for as part of your diplomatic work. I mean, as a side, as a side gig, you can get paid. Um, but I, I, I'd say maybe Pakistan would be an interesting example, right? So Pakistan was an environment, it's a challenging security environment, you know, movement restrictions and stuff like that. Um, but I actually got involved with, uh, with an indie band in Pakistan that was composed of Pakistanis and Iranians. And, you know, it, I had a tough time getting clearance from my security people, you know, to, <laughs> to do some of these gigs, you know. They're like, oh, that's not a place you should go. But, you know, there was an uneasy balance. And, and, and where this thing actually blew up was that the high commissioner, that's the ambassador, depending on the country, um, who, was, who was running our diplomatic mission in, in, in Pakistan, actually heard us at uh, this festival that we were playing at. So there were like, I don't know, maybe 10,000 people there. We played at this festival. And, and and the ambassador happened to be there. And so the ambassador calls me in, uh, I think the next Monday morning and says, what 
is going on? Like, I didn't know that you, you know, were involved in anything. Nobody ever told me, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, you know, I guess I didn't really have any reason to, to mention it. So, so I said, yeah, that, you know, this is what I do. And I, and I'd been doing a whole bunch of, you know, cross-cultural music stuff, a lot of, a lot of fusion, a lot of cultural fusion there. And so the ambassador had an idea that at the next big event, so usually when we have events, you have, you know, 500, 800, 1,000 people on our premises for these events. And she said, you know what, I want you to lead um, the music or the entertainment for that event as like a diplomatic cross-cultural thing. And she gave me carte blanche to run the entire program for that event. And that was with government officials and everything else. And it was when we did that, right? So we performed, we had a whole setup, stage, everything. Basically, I, I, they gave me whatever I wanted. <laughs> and when we did that, all of a sudden, the profile of our embassy or high commission shot through the roof. All of a sudden, it was like the humanization of diplomacy, right? Because people are like, you know, diplomats don't do any of this, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, we started getting calls. Oh, the Canadians are, you know, leading edge on culture and they really know how to integrate Pakistani influences into their cultural activities, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of a sudden, the all of these doors started to swing open. And people were giving us meetings and giving us opportunities that we just never would have had. I've got to take you out on on one last question, and I and it, yes. it really is about what you just said about humanizing diplomacy. You're a man of the world. Countries visited for sure, but 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 even languages, right? So Swiss, well, English, French, Swiss, German, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, and yeah, and and I. And I did gain some functionality in Urdu as well. Yeah, it's it's it was so much fun. But now, if I, I'm actually almost losing fingers, that is probably upwards of eight languages spoken. Um, you are, you know, I mean, you're a citizen of the world, man. If 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 any, if there is a ever was one, right? Um, where is your home? You know, home home for me really is where you can pour as much of yourself as possible into those communities, whether they are wider scale communities as well as your as your smaller circles. Like I think you need to accept that if you're gonna be as mobile as someone like me is, that you need to find an appropriate level of contentment where you are. Because if you don't you're going to end up with what we call the Heinz ketchup and cornflakes syndrome, which is you go to some country where there are no products that you can recognize available. And you're just, you're just waiting for somebody to send you Heinz ketchup and Kellogg's cornflakes by mail. You know, if, if that's what you, you need to, to survive, then maybe you're not really cut out for this kind of life. You know what I mean? So in terms of home, I think I'm reassessing that now because for the first time I've actually been back to Montreal for something other than just visiting family. And I've realized that obviously there are a lot of things that have changed, but at the same time, there are a lot of basic values and people in the community who haven't changed, not necessarily that they haven't aged, 
but their values haven't necessarily changed. And I feel that my experience is can be used to bring some perspectives into community, particularly when we talk about marginalized communities. I think what you see is when you're stuck in your reality, your day-to-day reality in your restricted space, you don't really have the opportunity to see around you, to understand what connections that you can build, nurture, and leverage in the wider community, whether that is locally in terms of the city, the country, or even the world. And so for me, it's really just about helping people understand that what takes you out into the world is actually your mindset. Ray Fankhauser, my guest, my friend, and uh, obviously a lifelong servant uh, of, of, of the Canadian diplomatic corps, but a, um, a young man who is still learning somehow and who has now reframed my view of Heinz ketchup and cornflakes thoroughly. So there you have it. The culture and conversation continues. I'd like to thank my guest once more, Ray Fankhauser. Ray, for your dedication to people and progress, I commend you. For your selflessness, least of which was expressed by giving up your time for this interview, I am eternally grateful, and we are all truly the benefactors. To you, the listener, I thank you for your continued support and participation in this journey, this project, and this ambition. It is nothing without you. My name again is Kondwani. Here's hoping you find yourself in every play.